Last week, we opened the book of Philippians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, a church that is very near and dear to his heart, a church that he had a very intimate and close and special relationship with. And last week, we went in actually into the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16 to look at three little vignettes, if you will, of three individuals who are in very different circumstances and how the grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, brought the three from different classes and different races all together in Christ to have the birth of the church of Philippi take place. And what a beautiful testimony it it was and it is to the unifying nature of the grace of God, that God not only reconciles us to himself through Jesus Christ, but reconciles us to one another, no matter how great our divisions might seem to be. Jesus Christ is greater. And so we see the birth of that church take place, and it's a beautiful thing. Remember, at this letter, Paul is in prison in Rome, and this church, Philippi, uh, is very uh, much uh, in love with him. They have strong affections for him, and therefore, they are very concerned about him. And we'll see in chapter 2 later that they send Epaphroditus to care for Paul and to minister to him and take care of him and give him some gifts and some provision. And so we know they're aware, they're concerned. Um, and so Paul is wanting to write this letter to them, uh, addressing their concerns, ministering to them. So today we're going to pick up reading uh, in Philippians chapter 1. Um, And we'll start reading in verse 12, if you can get there, Uh, just reminding ourselves also that this church of all these different backgrounds, this is 10 to 15 years later after the birth of that church, when he wrote this letter, reminding them in the opening chapters that he's confident that God who began that good work 10 to 15 years ago will be faithful to complete it. Philippians chapter one, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What we see in this letter to the Philippians over and over and over is Paul's ability to shift his focus off of his personal circumstances, and onto the mission. Paul, he could have in this letter, and may, may have wanted to, to go, man, guys, I want to tell you about how bad this is. I, I'm chained. I'm not able to eat really, you know, three square meals a day. You know, I'm not able to watch the NBA finals like I want to. I'm not able to do all this stuff, because, you know, there was big games back then. He's pro- he, he has plenty of things that he could have put in this letter. And he knows that he's writing to people who are concerned about his circumstances. But instead of going, yeah, you know what, it's pretty bad, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep my chin up. He's going, you know what, I, I don't even want to talk about how bad it is what I'm in. I would actually rather talk about how God is actually using my circumstances for the good. I would rather take my focus off of my pain and off of my suffering and off of this situation and turn it over to the fact that God, because of these circumstances, is using me to spread the gospel. We know this, exhibit A, 
that the imprisonment is actually advancing the gospel. One, he says, yeah, I'm in prison, but now all the imperial guards are aware of Jesus. He's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm here in prison. Yeah, I'm in chains, but, but check this out. Now all the guards know about Jesus. And so I don't want to talk about this other stuff. I want to talk about the fact that God is still somehow, even in this circumstance, using me and using these circumstances to reach people who did not know about Jesus. And this is the same thing that happened 10 to 15 years ago in Philippi when they were in prison and they began singing praises to God. And God comes into that jail and saves the blue-collar blue uh, jail worker at that day. And he's doing the same thing that the gospel is spreading. He says, everyone knows in this uh, prison about Jesus Christ now. And two, here's the other thing. My imprisonment is actually giving more boldness, giving the believers here in Rome more boldness to carry the message forward also. And so the church in Ephesus, I'm sorry, in Philippi, sends Epaphroditus to Paul. They're, they're saying, how are things going? We want to let everybody know. They, they, they bring him gifts. They bring him probably food and supplies. And they're checking on him. And they want updates from Paul. How are you doing? You're in prison. And, and Paul's saying, yeah, I, I'm in prison. And, but listen, if you want to know how good I'm doing, Paul might say, well, how am I doing? Well, let me ask you a question. How's the gospel doing? How's the gospel going forward? Is it going forward? It is? Okay, then I'm good. That's what Paul would say. He's sitting here going, you want to know how I'm doing? I want to know how the gospel's doing. The gospel's going forward? Then I'm good. I'm good as long as the message is still advancing. Yeah, I'm suffering. Yeah, I'm in a season of, of lack and a season where things aren't going the way I would probably want them to go. But you know what? Now all the guards know about Jesus, so I'm cool. And you know what else? I'm being told that all the other believers here in Rome are getting more confident, and they're, they're willing to, to put their neck out now because I did, and they're willing to say things that they might not have said before. They're becoming less and less and less afraid of man and less afraid of Rome and less afraid of Emperor Nero, and they're becoming less afraid of prison because I'm here and they're seeing what God's doing and they're going, you know what? Let's speak up even more. So how am I doing? I'm fine. He had this ability by the grace of God to take his eyes off of his suffering and onto the mission. And when he saw the mission of Christ continuing to flourish in spite of his circumstances, many translations render that verse, uh, verse 12, where it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served. Some translations say has actually served. Uh, that comes from the Greek word uh, prokope. And Paul could have here been doing a play on words because prokope sounds a whole lot like proskope. And proskope was a phrase that meant hindrance. And prokope meant actually for the better. So where they could have been expecting him to say, yeah, you know, guys, I want you to really be praying that I can get out of jail. I want you to really be praying that God would deliver me from these circumstances. He says, it hasn't been hindered. Actually, actually, the gospel's going forward because of this. And we'll see in a second, he goes on to say, and because of that, I rejoice. Let's pick up reading in verse 16. I'm sorry, not 16, verse 15. 
He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in the defense or for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's one more circumstance, one more situation where Paul, by what he's saying and what he's letting us look into, it looks like something not favorable to him. We don't know a whole lot about these people he's talking about, but the implications are that they are Christians to a degree. They're probably not Judaizers because Judaizers wouldn't be preaching Christ and therefore Paul wouldn't rejoice at that. So these are people who, whatever level or whatever was going on, it's probably Christians who for some reason were at ought with Paul or jealous of Paul. or It could be that they were jealous of his status and envious of him. And so they're going around while Paul's in prison and they're preaching Christ and they're doing it somehow to try and afflict Paul more. I don't know how, I'm not there. I don't know in what way they could have perceived that, but Paul at least realizes that happens. And he's saying, these guys, there's some people out here who are preaching Christ and they're trying to do it to afflict me in my circumstances. But you know what? Whether in pretense or in truth, whether they're sincere or not, whether they mean it or not, the gospel of Christ is going out. And so in that, I rejoice. One more time, Paul is going, okay, I have an opportunity here to whine. I have an opportunity because of what's going on. I could go, now so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, you guys need to send some people over there to tell them and to set them straight because they're trying to bother me and they're messing up what I'm doing. He's just going, you know, there's some people here who are being petty. And there's some people here who are doing some wrong, motivated things. But Jesus Christ is being preached. So one more time, I'm good. And these things that Satan would try to afflict me with through whatever these circumstances might be, I've got joy. See, joy is an emotion. It's a feeling. It's a feeling and an emotion that comes out from within us. It usually, though, elevates or decreases based upon what's happening to us, which is why this letter is so unique, so interesting, so counterintuitive, because Paul is in bad circumstances and bad thing after bad thing is happening to him, yet he still got joy. Because Paul, by the grace of God, was able to hitch his emotional wagon not to, him, to his circumstances, but to the mission for which he was alive. See, the spreading of the good news about Jesus Christ and the glory of Jesus Christ was so paramount to him that it transcended the suffering that he was experiencing. Let's bring this down now to ground zero to, to us today. I would never say don't pray for suffering that you might be going through. I would never tell you uh, or, or try to belittle or try to uh, pacify legitimate suffering and pain that you might be experiencing. What I would encourage you to do 
by the example of Paul that he's trying to set for the Philippians who are going to probably also be experiencing elements of suffering and persecution where they're at. Remember, they're in a colony that is Roman, that is all about the emperor, hail Caesar. You know, you better be a patriot and they are counterintuitive to that. So they're gonna have some suffering. They're gonna have some persecution. And Paul is trying to model to them that, you know what? Doesn't matter what's happening to me. And he's going to go on in a moment to say something that I think could be the mantra of Paul's life and Paul's ministry, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, we ought to ask ourselves, we ought to ask, where does my joy come from? What is my joy anchored to? Because if we're honest, especially in America, most of the times our joy is connected to our circumstances, that, that when things are going well, we're happy. And when things, you know, when the job is good and when the home life is good and when we're healthy and when all things are going well, man, that's when we can come into church and be like, praise Jesus, love you. Hey, brother, how you doing? Amen. I'm blessed and highly favored. All those things that, that when things are going well, it's easy to rejoice but Paul is going, I'm taking my eyes off of these circumstances, anchoring my joy to Jesus Christ. See, since Christ was the center of Paul's life, all other details of his imprisonment, they were peripheral. They were secondary. It's like, I don't even want to give screen time to that stuff. I don't even want to give pen and ink to my circumstances. I want to talk more about what God is doing through my circumstances. Let's go continue on. Philippians 1, and we're going to keep reading here in verse 19. Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. I'll pick up actually in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. I love that, that statement, that kind of choice we see right there. I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether I live or whether by life or by death. Here we go. Here's the big one. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can he say that? How can Paul say, you know what? For me to be alive is Christ and for me to die is gain. Is this a hint of, of suicidal tendency in Paul's life? No. No, this is one more account, a little snapshot of Paul going, listen, my eyes are not here. My hope is not here. My joy is not here. My, my eyes, my gaze, my focus, my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my joy is anchored in the intangible Christ within me, who is the hope of glory, he would tell the church in Colossae. And so, whether I'm alive, man, it's for Christ. 
And if I die, he said, whether by my life or by my death, that Christ would be glorified. He's confident that if he's alive, if there's breath in his lungs and if his heart is still beating, he's got to be on mission and it's going to be unto the glory of God. And if he some way dies, if, if he goes before some, some rulers and judges and they say death penalty, he's going, you know what? Christ is going to be honored in my death also to show that I love him and believe in him so much that I'm willing to put my neck out on the line and die for him, he will be glorified. And, and I hope and pray that we could learn from that. Could we get to a place where Christ is so our treasure, so our, our, our goal, so what we long for and hunger for and yearn for, that all the other things that come up and down and all the other things that come to us or at us and all other circumstances that fluctuate, the good, the bad, the ugly, the blessing, the suffering, that no matter what comes our way, our eyes are on Jesus. And because of that, I've got everything I need. And as long as I'm alive, it's gonna be to the glory of Christ. And if I have to die, it's going to be to the glory of Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul is talking to uh, the elders of the uh, Ephesian church, and he says, but I do not count my life of any value. I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And what is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's telling the, the elders of the church of Ephesus, I don't count my own life of any value to myself. What's the gospel of, of the American dream? Hey, you gotta, take, you gotta watch out for number one. You got to look out for number one. Take care of yourself first, right? That is counter gospel. That is counter biblical. That is anti Christ. The idea that you got to look out for yourself first. And that is one of the major themes of this letter that he wrote to Philippi. We can see it right here in what we're reading right now and what we're about to read. And then later in chapter two and in chapter three and in chapter four, we see Paul going, it's not about me. And we could see him telling the elders in the church of Ephesus, you know what? I don't count my life dear to myself, nor precious to myself, as long as I can testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For the Christian to have breath in your lungs is to live on mission for Christ. Some have said, some scholars have said that the letter of Philippians could be summarized as a call to cruciformity. I'm reminded again of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. You've heard it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
for me. Paul's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he echoes the same sentiment in a different way to the church in Galatia where he says, guys, you know what? I have been crucified with Christ. Was he speaking literally? No, he wasn't on the cross with Christ. But he's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, and now, today, our lives, thousands of years later, in Sheboygan County and wherever you may be watching online, and this life we now live in the flesh, wherever you're at right now, this life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Listen, if you're alive, you ought to be on mission. And we would much rather just pursue other dreams and goals and aspirations that we want to achieve certain statuses, we want to uh, achieve certain job levels or certain income levels or certain dreams and certain uh, material goals and different things like that. And those things aren't bad. They can be good, gracious gifts from God. But Paul is saying and Paul is modeling that if we're alive, Every single day, every single moment, every single conversation, every single opportunity ought to be motivated by the fact that I'm not in this life right now for Stephen. I'm in this life right now for Christ. And insert your name right there. I'm not in this life right now for myself. Because for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. How could he say that? How could he say to die is gain? Let's keep on reading. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, here's, here's what we were just talking about. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me, meaning I'm going to work and things will happen. I'm going to keep working for the gospel and lives will be changed. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. See, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's saying to die, for me, it's, it's way better. And it's interesting, too. He's saying, man, I'm really, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place on this. For me, to die and go be with Christ, if you're asking what I want to do, that'd be way better for me. Because we can see in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, he's, he gives an account of, you know, I've been shipwrecked this many times. I've been beaten with rods this many times. I've been stoned. I've been slandered. I've been persecuted. I've been imprisoned. All this stuff. Yet another time we can see that he calls this a light and momentary affliction that will be exceeded by a far greater weight of glory in what is to come. How is it that Paul could keep on, keep on, keep on going through all this stuff and still be on mission. Like, just realistically thinking, if we went through the same things that Paul went through, we would probably be, probably not you, me, I'm sure you're, you're, you're more mature and strong in your faith than me to where you would be like, yeah, keep it on like Paul. I would probably be like, whoa, it's me. Lord, what are you doing? God, why have you forsaken me? God, why are you letting this happen to me? 
God, why do you let good things happen to, or bad things happen to good people? And we just continually see Paul over and over and over and over and over going through all this stuff, circumstance after circumstance, suffering upon suffering, and going, yep, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. They threw me in jail. Oh, okay, well, I get to tell all the prison guards about Jesus. Oh, you want to kill me? Well, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I win because my goal and my gaze is on Christ. Not my comfort, not my convenience, not what I want. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part or to depart and be with Christ for that is far better for me. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account saying it's better for you that I stay. Convinced of this, you know what? I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I I love how he's kind of letting us just see his his thought process unfold. He says, I'm going to honor God I'm going to honor Christ whether by my life or by my death because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And honestly, guys, I'm really hard-pressed between these two decisions. I would rather get out of here. I'd rather die and go be with Christ. That's better for me. I'm really struggling with this decision. And then he goes on to say, but you know what? You know what I, I realize? It's better for you. It's better for the mission of God if I put aside what I want. Paul has noble aspirations in wanting to be with Christ. There's no sin in that motive. That is a wonderful, ultimate desire. And he says, even though that's what I want, and it's not wrong for me to want that, and that is the greatest thing in my entire life that I dream for and long for and desire above all things, I realize that it's better for you if I stay. Because if I stay, that means more fruitful labor. If I stay, and if I put aside what I want, and if I put aside my desire to get out of these chains, and if I put aside my desire to not keep on suffering in whatever ways may come, I recognize it's going to be better for you and better for the gospel advancement, the gospel mission, if I stay. And I love what he points out here. When he says why he chooses to continue to stay, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress. It's the same Paul who in chapter one said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it into the perfect day. It's better for you for your progress and what? Joy. Joy in the faith. For your progress and your joy. In the faith, Paul is trying to, one, model to them. He says, yeah, I'm in prison, but the guards are being reached for Christ. And, and uh, you know, the other people in Rome, the other believers, are, are gaining boldness and confidence for Christ. And so in that, I rejoice and I've got joy. And I want you to see the same thing, that I want to stay, that you can progress and grow in your faith, also in your joy in faith, and he says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because 
of my coming to you again. One more time, we see Paul taking his eyes off of what he wants and off of his comforts, off of his circumstances, and up onto the mission of God. We see Paul shifts his focus off of what would be best for him and onto what would be best for them. Is this not the call of service for the Christian? Is this not what Jesus modeled in the upper room when he takes off his outer garments and wraps the towel around himself and stoops down and begins washing his disciples' feet? And Peter says, no, 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 not me, Lord. Are you kidding? You can't wash my feet. You're above me. And Jesus says, Peter, shut it. (laughs) You don't get it. You're not mindful of the things of God. I'm trying to show you something. And then Jesus goes on to say, what I'm doing for you Now you do for one another. Was that to literally say that we've got to literally wash each other's feet? I've been a part of some of that sometimes. But listen, the call is to put whatever status and achievement and level you think you might have to set it aside so that we can serve one another and do what's better for others rather than what's better for ourselves. Paul recognizes the life I have been given. This this ripples out into our homes, our cars, our money, our time, our schedules. What has God given us that we could use to serve, love, and bless others? And Paul is sitting there in prison, could be going, you know, what could I do? And he says, you know what? I can keep doing stuff from here because it's better for you that way. He shifts his focus off of what would be best for him and onto what would be best for them. Paul shows us over and over this eternal mindset that he's got, recognizing that the season that he's in is but a season. This too shall pass. And I think about how much Paul must have seen and known, man, my day, it it is coming. And I will see Jesus face to face. And I will behold him unveiled and I will gaze upon the prize and the reward of all existence the glory of Christ and man I want that bad there's nothing I want more than to go and be with Jesus but it's going to be better for you I can set that aside for a time and if I can delay that gratification so that I can make sure that you're still progressing and that your joy in Christ is being full and refilled and being stirred. Man, what if our church family could all think that way? What if we could all think that way? That we're here to serve the progress and the joy of one another in the faith. Verse 27. I'm scared of this next verse. (laughs) Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
For it has been granted. That's just an interesting word. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That first verse there, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I want you to let that sink in for a second. No, that wasn't something I said just so I could have a water break. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that sounds impossible. Like how can I live worthy of the message of the perfect and flawless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who came and laid his life down that I could be saved and welcomed back into the family of God? How can I live worthy of that? And it must only be by the grace of God and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within. Because none of us is capable of of doing that. None of us is capable of our own strength our own volition, our own willpower, our own accord, our own dedication, our own commitment. None of us has the ability, the power, the strength, the dedication, determination to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like what could we do to be worthy of that message? And it comes in living in that gospel that actually I can't do enough. And therefore, I must place my faith, my hope completely in Jesus Christ and what he did on the gospel. And I receive that gracious gift by faith. And then I let that ripple out into every area of my life. See, the gospel ought to have visible effects in every single area of our lives. That's the bottom line for this week. How do we live a life, live a, a, a life that is worthy of the gospel? Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. If the gospel has not just hit your head but sunk down into your heart, then it will be seen in every area of your lives. If the gospel, the knowledge of the saving, gracious gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin, if that has done more than just hit your head to where you mentally have mental assent of that truth and of that information, if it's done more than hit your head and it's sunken down into your heart where it has changed you, then it overflows into every area of your life. If you truly believe this, if it has hit your heart, then your bank statement will show it oh, he wants us to give more money to the church. I'm not even talking about that. It will overflow into your schedule. It will overflow into your priorities. It will overflow into the things that you choose to participate in and the things you choose to abstain from. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that has every single area of your life flooded with the grace of God, the mission of God, the priorities of God. 
A lot of times we hear, you know, let's just, let's keep Jesus at the center. And I feel it's much more biblical that it's like Jesus actually saturates every single thing. It's not that Jesus is at the middle and I'm over here and I, oh yeah, come back to Jesus. It's like, no, while I'm over here doing this, while I'm over here playing golf or softball or while I'm over here working or while I'm over here at the grocery store or while I'm over here visiting family or while I'm over here on vacation or while I'm over here looking at stocks or bonds or cryptocurrency, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, Christ has saturated every bit of it. Because for me to live is Christ. So in whatever I'm doing and whatever I'm involved in, it ought to be as if Christ were doing it. The gospel ought to have visible effects in every single area of our lives. And, and, and Paul echoes the sentiments of Jesus Christ when he says in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's echoing the sentiments of Jesus Christ one more time in the opening chapters of Matthew where Jesus says that, hey, when you're persecuted, it's actually a sign that you belong to me. And guys, I'm telling you, we're in America and it's 2021. And I'm just looking and you're hopefully looking, there is very possibly a day where we might find ourselves in circumstances similar to Paul's, similar to the early church, the first century church, where we have to decide is to live as Christ, is to die gain. I can see days coming in probably our lifetimes, in our age, in our generation, it's only ramping up and it will only ramp up more and more and be louder and louder where you're going to have to decide, do you live for Christ or are you going to waffle under the pressure of the mob? And are you going to let the, the pressure and the burden and, and the influence of those who are going to call you hateful things and maybe step out to more than just calling you things, but doing things to you? And what if, God forbid, but what if there's a day where laws have changed to where what we do is illegal? That might happen in our lifetimes. And I would hope that the letter to Philippi would be a letter that would resound within our hearts, saying to us once more, to live as Christ and die as gain. And whether by my life or by my death, whether by my blessing or whether by my suffering, whether by my abounding, as we'll get to in Philippians chapter 3, or by my abase, to live for Christ and to have him saturate every single tiny area of our lives. This is the mission that motivates the joy. And that we could lift our eyes up off of what we're doing or what, what's happening to us and what we're experiencing and what's not good enough and what's not ideal and still pray for those things and pray that it would be changed. And Paul even pleaded, uh, appealed to them to pray for his deliverance, but 
choosing to just have our heart, our, our eyes, our gaze, our joy so anchored in Christ that no matter what happens, we could just go, eh, I'm good because the gospel's going out. I'm good because I've got Christ. What can man do to me? To live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm going to win no matter what. Paul wants us to see that Christ-motivated sacrifice doesn't lead to sorrow like we would think. Who would be sitting here going, oh, the things I've got to go through for Jesus. Oh, the things I've got to let go of for Jesus. Man, Jesus, you're... I don't want to do this, but... Okay. I don't want to go through this, but... Contrary to what we would expect and think, where we would think sacrificing for Christ would lead to to levels of sorrow, he's saying, no, actually, on the contrary, it leads to depths of joy. That that we think the sacrificing for Christ leads to, to sorrow, but he's saying, no, it actually leads to joy. Deep, deep, deep joy that suffering can't even reach. There is a beautiful marriage between what we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ and that great surpassing joy. Deeper than our pain, our discomforts, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, a joy that is so anchored in affections for Christ and driven for the mission of Christ that our circumstances and our personal hopes and desires cannot reach the depths of our joy because our true hopes and affections are buried in Christ. That our affections, our heart, is so deeply buried in Christ that yeah, that stuff sucks. (laughs) Not trying to downplay that but we have something that transcends, something that goes deeper, something that is broader than what Paul calls light and momentary affliction. The guy who was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and imprisoned and and slandered, light and momentary afflictions that would be outweighed by the exceeding weight of glory to come at the face of Christ in eternity. God, I pray today that you would let your word sink into the depths of our heart. We recognize this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi, but it is words that you inspired him to write that became divinely inspired scripture, that it is authoritative in our lives. And the authority of scripture right now is, is calling us into a real, tangible, deep joy in Christ. That whether we're battling with sickness or persecution or whatever other kind of sufferings we may experience or will experience, that we, like Paul, would be able to take our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ, onto the mission, and that hopefully we would be called today and stirred by the Holy Spirit 
to say amen to the statement that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as long as we're here, we're not here just to, to, to check off our, our, our bucket list of dreams or, or our goals or hopes or aspirations for achievements or all the different things that we want to live for. But that while we are alive, to live as Christ that we have been crucified with Christ that it would no longer be us who live but Christ who lives in this life that we live in the flesh we would live by faith in the son of God who loved us that you gave yourself for us and God I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would do what my words cannot do And that you would do what no one's words can do, but by your Holy Spirit, that you would let these truths sink down past the ears and past the brain and into the heart to bring about transformation to where this wouldn't be things that we aspire to or try to do, but that it would overflow out of us from what you've done inside of us and changed within our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.